you will, to Matthew chapter 3. And as you turn there, I do want to remind you of the fact that by working systematically through the book of Matthew, uh, we are really allowing the Holy Spirit to choose for us in, in order, in the proper order, the themes from our Lord's life that need to be considered. You remember that our Lord's public ministry actually involved uh, about three years of things that he taught and uh, the works that he performed that confirmed the truth of his teaching. And so what we have really is uh, the Spirit just recording a select portion of that. We don't get all of it. We get a very small portion. And that is by deliberate design. Uh, the Lord has done that so that his people can take his truth into their lives in the proper proportions with which it's been given out. So by following a book verse by verse, it becomes an effective medium uh, through which God then shapes the life of every believer into the right kind of Christ-likeness. I think it's important to keep that in mind. So I want to begin this morning by just quickly surveying chapters 3 and 4, and then we'll come back to the verses that will be our text for this morning. Just look down through the first 12 verses of chapter 3, and you'll see that they're not about Jesus Christ, but about another first century man, uh, a man by the name of John the Baptist. Those 12 verses are about his ministry, and of course, that wasn't the name that uh, the Baptist gave him. Uh, but the Bible refers to him as John the Baptist. And the reason for that, or one of the reasons, is because in the second section of the chapter, verses 13 to 17, John baptizes Jesus. It's the second section. So in our last message, you remember we left uh, the Lord when he was an infant growing up now in Nazareth. But when you open chapter 3, he's now an adult, about the age of 30. He's then baptized by his cousin John. And then notice the opening section of chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, where we are introduced to a second major event in his adult life. And that is his temptation by the devil in the wilderness. Following that, if you look at verse 12, which is a few months later, John the Baptist is thrown into prison. And verse 12 says, Now when Jesus heard that, uh, he departed then to Galilee, which is in the northern part of Israel, above the Dead Sea. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt now in Capernaum, which then becomes his base for his Galilean ministry. And note verse 17 from that time, Jesus began to preach, and his message is encapsulated in these words, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So that is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Now, after surveying those chapters, the question that I want to raise for you for this morning is this. When we come to this part of the book, where we are introduced to the adult ministry of the Messiah, why does somebody else intervene? Why are we first confronted 
with the preaching of somebody other than Jesus Christ. It almost seems as if we're being kept back from what we need to get to as quickly as possible. So what is the point of the first 12 verses in chapter 3? Well, I want to begin giving some attention to the ministry of John the Baptist and God's use of him, not only in the first century, but his use in the life of every Christian reader. Because if the Spirit, as I mentioned earlier, if the Spirit really does give us the themes of this book in the right proportions at the right time, we can't just leap over John's ministry in order to get to Jesus' ministry. Because John's ministry does have a unique purpose. Not only in the earthly life of Jesus, but also in the life of every Bible reader, or else it wouldn't be included in the way that it is. So I want to settle into the life and ministry of this man for several sermons, maybe two or three, and just allow the Spirit of God to use it in our lives as he sees fit. And I think if we do that with open hearts, I trust we will see, as a result, some measurable change in our Christian progress. Now, the first thing I want to point out from what we have recorded here in these 12 verses is that this man is presented in the New Testament as a preacher of great magnitude. In fact, it's really a unique magnitude. Uh, he's presented to us in the Gospels as unique, meaning he's one of a kind, and it's a unique magnitude. Uh, the first thing that testifies to that, without even studying the text, is the fact that so many verses are given in the Gospels just telling us about him. In other words, it isn't only Matthew who begins the ministry of Jesus with this kind of Introduction. There are 12 verses here, but every gospel offers a great deal of material about the life and the ministry of John. In fact, when you put the four accounts together, it adds up to about 150 verses. That would be the equivalent of, uh, you know, say, five 30-verse chapters. We have a lot of books in our New Testament that aren't even that big. Now, there is a reason for that, and this is the second thing I want to point out about this man's unique magnitude. It's the fact that he was the first new prophet to these people in over four centuries. Uh, think about that. Uh, it's been a long time since 1623. Think of all the intervening historical events uh, since then uh, that have happened. Uh, I mean, the pilgrims landed in America in 1620. Europeans wouldn't settle Australia for another 150 years. But how unimaginable it would be for us if there had not been one really spirit-filled voice greatly used by God since the 1620s. You know, that was exactly the case in Israel. Now, the last writing prophet was Malachi which is dated in the 5th century before Christ, or the 400s. And there's no record of any national prophetic voice between Malachi and John the Baptist. He came like one of the early reformers, uh, like a John Wycliffe, 
after a thousand years of the dark ages. He just seemed to pop up out of nowhere with a burning light when there had been nothing but darkness for centuries. But then the third thing, and really the defining thing that confirms the unique magnitude of this man, is the fact that Jesus made a shocking statement about him. In chapter 11 of this gospel, when discussing the ministry of John with his disciples, Jesus said that among those born of women, there's not risen one greater than John the Baptist. That is a staggering comparison. When you think back through all of the biblical figures that preceded John, men like Enoch uh, and Noah and the patriarchs, and Moses, and Joshua, and Samuel, and David, and Solomon, and Elijah, and Elisha, and Isaiah, and all of the other uh, writing prophets. And yet this man, well, this man is the greatest ever born of women. In other words, in our good and proper desire to give Jesus the glory that he is due, we have actually overlooked the greatest figure in 4,000 years of human history. This man is the single greatest individual in pre-Christian history. Now just think of the greatest leaders in the history of the world. When they take surveys of who people believe are the greatest of all leaders, you typically have three or four names that always emerge at the top of the list. Men like Abraham Lincoln, men like Alexander the Great, or Winston Churchill. Well, You know, apart from what the Lord said in this verse, if Christians were asked who was the greatest of all men before Christ, would John the Baptist have even made the top ten? But from divine viewpoint, he is the standout. He is the single greatest. Now, what characteristic made him number one? Especially when you consider that his ministry probably lasted as little as six months certainly less than a year. What characteristic about this man gave him his greatness? Well, I want to put my finger on something that I think is critical for us to remember about anyone who stands out in Christian history. And it's simply this, that the greatness is never in the individual himself been said, you know, that there are people who are born to be great. Then there are people who make themselves great. There are also people, as the saying goes, who have greatness thrust upon them. But what is remarkable about this man is that he was just born great. He was filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb. The Bible says, and that set him apart. In other words, when it comes to all figures in Christian history, not just John, it's not that they made themselves great or that they were great in their persons because of their strength or their intellect or their passion. No, it is God's use of them that makes them great. And that is a sovereign choice. No man can take that to himself. You cannot command the Spirit of God to use you like that. 
Uh, sometimes we tell young people to give their life to Christ, uh, to surrender themselves to Christian service because the Lord needs you, and that's how we appeal to them. But actually, you really have to remember what God said to Oswald Chambers when he was wrestling with the call to ministry. God said to him, you know, I could make use of you, but I don't have to. And the fact is, it's always God's calling that makes anyone useful, let alone great, among those who are born of women. So, what is it then about this man that was God's unusual favor upon him, which earned him the statement from Christ as the greatest of all men? Well, to answer that question, I want you to turn to Mark's account of John's ministry in chapter 1 of his gospel. I mentioned to you that every one of the gospels records this man's ministry. And I want to move from the point about his unique magnitude to a consideration of the function that this man had with reference to the ministry of Jesus Christ. And I want to do that from the record that is found in Mark's account. I want to read the first four verses of Mark 1. This gospel opens without any reference to the childhood of Jesus. But instead, Mark writes, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is where it all began. Verse 2, as it's written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Well, who are these prophets referring to? The fulfillment in verse 4 is in the life of this man we're talking about, John. John is the one who came baptizing in the wilderness, just like he was predicted. It says he came preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Now, Mark has the shortest account of John, and yet he gives us the widest window into God's mind about him. Because while the other gospel writers quote what is found in verse 3, Mark includes some additional information in verse 2, which none of the other gospels include. So what gave this man his unique greatness? Well, look at verse 2 and this prediction. Behold, I send my messenger. Now, that was true for all the prophets, right? I mean, they were all sent by God. But look at the second part now. Who will prepare your way before you. And that was the unique mission of this man. It was his immediate preparation for the Messiah. Look at the verse again. Behold, I send my messenger. Who's the I? It's the Lord himself, right? I, the Lord, send my messenger who will prepare the way before you. Who's the you? We'll just connect you back to Jesus Christ in the previous verse because the you is the Messiah. So the Lord is saying, I'm going to send my messenger before you, the Messiah, and the messenger, John, will prepare Messiah's way. So that was his uniqueness. He was John the preparer. 
if you will. So first of all, he is a man of unique ministerial magnitude, but that's because, secondly, he is the preacher who prepared Messiah's way. And I'm primarily interested in the significance and application of that ministry for us this morning. Now, I want to divide this second point into two sub-points by calling your attention to the fact that verses 2 and 3 are actually two Old Testament prophecies. I'm not sure what happened to the PowerPoint, but it's supposed to go line by line. So ignore what's on the PowerPoint. It'll, it'll mess you up. And just listen to me. <laughs> I want to locate the two prophecies first of all. First one comes from Malachi 3.1. Chapter 3, verse 1. And verse 3 records a prophecy from Isaiah 40, verse 3. So the Spirit of God is bringing these two prophecies together although they're written several centuries apart from one another, but they're combined here with reference to this man. So let's look at the Malachi prophecy in verse 2. Three things I want to note about it. One of them is technical, but it's necessary because some of you are using the New King James Version, and some of you are using an English Standard Version. In the New King James, the prediction is introduced in verse 2 with the words, as it is written in the prophets. But in the English Standard Version, it says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Who has an ESV here? Don't be shy. Okay, some of you have ESVs. Who has New King James? God bless you. All right. <laughs> That's what I typically use. But I like the ESV. It's okay. All right. ESV says, as it is written in Isaiah. This means now, you not only have the question of why there are two different readings in Mark like that, in those two versions, but the bigger question is this. How can a prediction in Malachi be introduced as being written in Isaiah? You ever think about that? So let's spend a moment with that because I think this is something that Bible critics attack. And it may cause someone here to stumble as well. I want to point out that the reading, Isaiah the prophet, reflected in the ESV, is very, very old. comes from much older manuscripts than the reading that is reflected in the New King James. It goes back to at least the third century after Christ, because there was a critic of Christianity at that time. Uh, it was a man by the name of Porphyry who wrote, 15 books against Christians, and in one book he jumped on this Isaiah reading in order to say to believers, look, your New Testament is false. That quotes from Malachi, your Bible says Isaiah. So we know this was a very early reading if someone's writing like that in the third century. That make sense? The reading which says the prophets comes from manuscripts that are written many centuries after that. So the translators of the New King James were using those manuscripts, which is why they have that reading. But Isaiah is actually the earliest reading, meaning that it's probably the correct one. So how do we explain that? Well, here's a possible explanation. Out of all the biblical prophets, who is typically seen as the chief prophet? If you look at all the prophets who wrote in the Bible, the one who really summarizes them all is Isaiah. 
In fact, he's the first of the prophets in your English Bible. Now, the fact is, there really is a quotation from Isaiah that's coming in the very next verse in Mark. So it appears that as if Mark, in his abbreviated style of writing, which is characteristic of Mark, is just using the second name as a heading for the whole prophetic passage. And he's quoting and combining two prophets under that heading. That is a possible explanation for this, and it's actually quite common for ancient writers to do that. This is not unusual. When they add several prophecies into one, very often they will introduce them all by using the name of the most prominent prophet who's being quoted. In this case, it's Isaiah. Let's just get that out of our minds. The second thing I want you to note about this quote from Malachi is the way that Mark records it. He actually reveals John's close proximity to the one he was preparing for. I mean, John is the preacher who prepared Messiah's way. Okay, but look at what it says about how close he's going to be to the Messiah. Mark quotes Malachi and says, Behold, I send my messenger before your face. Now, that phrase, before your, fra- your face, is a literal Greek reading in the text word for word. However, when you read the Hebrew in the Old Testament, and that phrase comes up, which it does quite often, those three words are usually combined into one word that simply means before. In other words, you have here a common Hebrew idiom that occurs many times in the Old Testament. But most of the time, it's just translated as before, as it is in Malachi 3.1. Malachi writes, Behold, I send my messenger before me. That's what it says in Malachi. But when Mark is quoting Malachi, the Spirit of God breathed out that quote in Greek, And as he did, he broke up that Hebrew idiom into all three of those words so that it reads, before your face. I send my messenger before your face because the fact is, while all of the prophets prepared for the coming of the Messiah, the uniqueness of John is that he does it right in front of his face. What is that meant to communicate to us except that this man would minister in the personal presence of the Messiah himself. Now that's greatness. That's greatness in Parliament. Many seats in Parliament. But those that are closest to the floor are coveted as the higher offices in government. We even talk about those who are put on the back bench. They no longer have favor. That's greatness in the White House, where the offices closest to the Oval Office are coveted for their proximity to the president, just like the the seats on his left and right in cabinet meetings. Why? Because that close proximity is viewed as a sign of influence and power, and it's been that way throughout history. Those who are closest to the king, those who are closest to the queen are the most powerful and influential people in the realm, if you're banished from court, the shame 
was not that you changed your address. The shame was that you lost your position of influence and proximity to the royal face. You shall see my face no more. They would often say to these people. Well, in John's case, his ministry was in the closest of all positions to the Messiah himself. He is powerful and influential and great in God's use of him like that. But then there's something else I want to point out that demonstrates, I think, one of those really special features of the Bible. When we're in heaven one day and we fully know the Lord, one of the things that will amaze us is the perfection of the details in the Bible that we never really noticed on earth. It's like a jeweler looking at diamonds and his trained eye can see far more than the average person. Well, when we finally see more fully in heaven, it'll be remarkable to us that throughout Scripture, every single detail was shaped with exquisite perfection and yet communicated precisely in terms of the whole. And you have a remarkable illustration of that here, and you can only see it if you compare Mark and Malachi again. Look at both passages. Malachi 3, 1, Mark 1, 2. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Let me start with Mark's text. It says, Behold, I send my messenger before your face. Whose face? All right, the Messiah. Jesus Christ, but look at Malachi's reading. Behold, I, that's the Lord, send my messenger, that's John, and he will prepare the way before me. It's me. That little Hebrew word, which is the combination of the three words I told you about, is made up of the preposition before, the noun face, and on the end of it, it has the suffix my. So it's literally before my face, Translated here as before me. But when it's breathed out in the New Testament, it's breathed out in these terms. Before your face, pointing to the Messiah. So why does John's close proximity to the Messiah give him the greatness that it did? In part because of what Malachi makes explicit about the identity of the Messiah. I mean... Here's one of those little details embedded in Scripture that I think is so easily overlooked. While Mark is expanding what Malachi wrote, Malachi made it clear that the Messiah is who? It's the Lord. It's Jehovah. It's Yahweh, the Lord of hosts. He's the one speaking the text in Malachi. I send my messenger before my face. What do you mean by that, Lord? Well, Mark's gospel, I'm sending John before the Messiah. That's my face. His face is my face. That is an amazing statement because it reveals that the Lord who makes to prediction is Jesus, the Messiah. And that suggests the greatness involved in being used by God to prepare his way. I mean, just look at who the Messiah really is. You're actually dealing here with the Lord of glory. And John ministers in immediate proximity to Jehovah. 
What a remarkable revelation to the readers of Mark's gospel. I mean, the Lord's messenger, yes, outstanding. But going in the immediate presence of Yahweh to prepare his way as the Messiah, that's the calling of this man who is the preparer for that way. Now, that brings us to the second Old Testament quote in Mark's gospel. Let's go back to verse 3 where Isaiah is quoted. Here you can see the Spirit of God deliberately diminishing John when Isaiah 40 verse 3 says of this man, this is just the voice. This is the voice of one crying out there in the Judean wilderness. But what I'm really interested in for us this morning is what the next two lines tell us was John's message because this reveals the way in which he prepared for the Messiah. God said, I'm sending my messenger. He will prepare the way for me. Okay, how will he prepare the way? By telling people to make ready to prepare themselves for the coming of the Lord. Right? It's like a, like a herald riding into town to announce that the king is coming. He's gone ahead. He's going to prepare the way. So he calls out, prepare the way for the king. What are the people supposed to do? Well, prepare yourselves. Clean the area. Line the streets. Make a path. Dress yourselves up. Make yourself ready. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God because the king is coming. That's what John is doing. He's preparing the way by calling on the people to prepare themselves. And I think it's quite suggestive that all four Gospels quote that statement. In other words, you can't avoid it. If you read the New Testament and you begin in any one of the four Gospels, you're confronted with this before you ever get to the personal ministry of Jesus Christ. I mean, before you hear His preaching, before you read His miracles, before you get one promise out of His mouth, you're told to make yourself ready for that. Now, I don't think there's anything more instructive for us today than this. People who really want to be introduced to the Lord must prepare themselves because he is not what most intellectuals or experts think that he is. He is not, as they say, an ordinary first century rabbi. This is not merely the founder of one of the world's great religions. That's what, the, that's what it says in secular textbooks. That's what the encyclopedias record. That's what Wikipedia says. A great fountain of knowledge. But is that all you believe? Are you on the same level as the secular experts? Is that as far as you go? Now, this person is not presented in the Gospels as a great social reformer who said a lot of wise things that everybody should consider. There are many who are willing to praise him for that. But the person presented in the New Testament is the Ancient of Days. He is the one who actually predicted his own coming centuries earlier, and he ordained the exact timing. He's the individual who Malachi said would finally come suddenly to his temple, but before he came, there had to be some preparation. 
In other words, John is not simply announcing his coming to gather a crowd of curious spectators. No, he is the greatest of all born to women because his role was to urge people to prepare themselves to take the necessary steps when they're going to be introduced into the presence of the Lord of glory. Now, why don't people in this country and all over Western Europe and America, and really anyone throughout the world who's familiar with the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ, why don't they do this today? I mean, the Jew had Malachi. We have the book of Revelation. They're nearly exact parallels, right? For the Jew, Malachi ended their sacred scripture by telling them that the Messiah is coming. So, hey, get ready. Make yourselves ready. For people living in this age, the book of Revelation ends the scriptures of the New Testament. And it's filled with promises of his second coming. And it urges us to make ourselves ready. So why are people, those who've been exposed to the life and ministry of Jesus through missionaries, or by growing up with a Christian heritage, maybe by sitting in a gospel-preaching church all of their lives, why do they not give serious attention to this preparation? I think it's because it all seems so remote to us, doesn't it? Uh, we can identify with this. I think we can identify with this in the way that we complain about our prayers not being answered, right? We all know what it is to ask the Lord for something, and because we don't like the answer no, we don't like the answer, wait. It's as if he didn't answer us at all. So months go by and we stop praying for that request. And in time, we even forget that we prayed about it at all. Well, think about these people in the first century. They've been conquered and governed and oppressed at this point in time for nearly six centuries. First, it was Babylon and the Persians, then the Greeks, and then Rome. By AD 30, it's as if the fulfillment of those predictions of Messiah's coming are as far away as they're ever going to be. Let's look at the Roman Empire on a map. This thing sprawled over the entire known world by this time. It went all the way up from Spain, went up into Western Europe as far as the British Isles, went across the Alps as far as the Caspian Sea, down through Armenia, and Syria, and Judea, and all across North Africa, and then back out through the ocean. If you look on a map, it just, it just looks like one great big iron band of Rome. Well, here are all of these prophecies about God. He's going to break that yoke. He's going to free his people. The desert's going to blossom like a rose, or restore your fortunes, and regather your people, and Messiah is coming, and I'm sending my messenger before your face, but... I mean, who was around in those days who even had the faith to prepare himself for that? And if I can draw this application, what happened in the first century is what's happening today. And the real work of God has been long predicted, but long delayed. People who've been exposed to the Bible and Christianity cease to have hope. And they turn from seeking the Lord to adopting alternatives for themselves. And there, my friends, is the danger. 
So I want to turn thirdly and lastly to the people whom John was attempting to prepare, his audience. Now, you can easily draw parallels here. Parallels to what's going on in our time. In both cases, you have people who are retaining their religion as their heritage. People do this in our country. England has always been a Christian nation. America has a Christian heritage. Australia usually is listed in world religions as being Christian as opposed to being Buddhist or Hindu or Shintoist or whatever. So there are many people in nations like ours who retain their Christianity as their historical heritage, just like the Jews retain Judaism as their historical heritage. And yet in both cases, they're almost completely secular in how they interact with the world. For example, one of the things I discovered early in my ministry was that social action, political reform, and civil disobedience become very enticing substitutes for carnal Christians, or those who really don't want to settle down and submit their lives to the Lord. Now, Thank God for those who are called into social and political arenas. And they're humble and surrendered, godly people. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people for whom the word salvation actually takes on a completely different meaning. And their view of salvation is outward. I've had the opportunity to talk to many pastors over the last number of years and when I ask them about the evangelistic activity of the church, they're very quick to talk to me about how they run an op shop, or they participate in drug prevention causes, or Meals on Wheels, or they support World Vision, they sponsor children, and, you know, please don't misunderstand me. You know, I think the church should be involved in social causes as a bridge to the gospel, but let's not kid ourselves, right? Feeding the hungry is not sharing the gospel, <laughs> It might open the gospel to people, might open gospel conversations, it might soften them to Christianity, and for that reason, we do want to show care. We do want to show compassion in our community. But the good news itself is not that Christians are housing the homeless or giving them a hot meal. And my point is that churches lose the plot when they, when they substitute social works for real gospel ministry and yet they refer to those works or their political activism as their gospel ministry. You see the difference? The first century counterpart to this in Israel was called the Zealot Movement. Uh, a man like Barabbas was part of that. Salvation for this group included political agitation and civil unrest and this strong Resistance to Rome in an effort to throw off their occupation. There are people like that in every nation on earth who've been exposed to Christianity and yet their focus is upon uh, the kingdom in an earthly form like that, political or social activism. On the other hand, there are people who deal with their frustrations in life and the Lord's seeming inactivity in the world by burrowing deeper and deeper into rituals and legalism, like the Pharisees. And what happens is that those people end up 
defining their faith in terms of what they do. And so they multiply and strengthen and widen their legalities until they become more enslaved in their consciences than they were in their bodies. The most enslaved people in Israel were the Pharisees. And they were part of John's audience. And obvious parallels to that in Christendom today. But then there are people on the opposite end of the spectrum who totally capitulate to culture and they do it with a completely carefree attitude. Their attitude is, you know, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. And in any Christian society today, you can tell these people because they know how to work the system. They know how to find Bible verses to justify what they do. They got it all figured out. But in spite of their Christian profession, the bottom line is their belief that a man's life consists in the abundance of the things he possesses. Today we would call them health and wealth believers, and that's how they get through life as so-called Christians. I've called them worldly, nominal Christians, Christians in name who are willing to embrace all that the world has to offer and more. Then you have people like the Sadducees who found other ways to make it work for them. These were the guys who were totally sold out religiously, the religious liberals of the day. They were happy to deny many fundamental teachings in Scripture. They were happy to compromise the sacred things of Judaism in order to take money from Rome simply for the sake of rising in status and power. Well, that's a common feature among churches, right? Very quick to compromise their doctrine and beliefs in order to be more acceptable to the community, in order to claim more government handouts or or GST credits or social benefits or rise in influence in social and political causes. You also have people in our society who are conservative evangelicals, but yet they're frustrated, they're They feel personally defeated by what's going on in the world, and so they see only one answer for them, and that's isolationism. So like monks in the desert, they just abandon all attempts to influence the world and society. They do exactly what you can see when you visit the Qumran community on the western edge of the Dead Sea. In that remote location, you look up in the hills, you'll see cave after cave in the hills where those men dug themselves in Just a totally defensive position. Because, you know, what's the use? We can't change society anyway. Isolationism. But I suppose that the majority of people in nations like this are just common sinners. They're so preoccupied with the need to simply put food on the table. They just don't have any time to spare, to give any energies to theological arguments or serious Christianity and yeah, this is just the way it is. I'm just going to do the best that I can, and if that means that every once in a while I get into some sinful pleasures, and you know my conscience might bother me, but hey, everybody's doing it. Everybody's got to have a release. So I justify it and move on. And I, I say to myself, at least I'm not as bad as those other people. Well, by the appointment of God and in the fullness of time, All of those groups in the first century would have the opportunity to hear and prepare for the coming of the Lord of glory. But let me tell you, not one of them was ready for it. 
In every case, the option that they had chosen betrayed them. And they did not prepare themselves. You know, they say that the religious conservatives, organizations like the Australian Christian Lobby, have a lot to do with keeping our politicians honest. Well, is the religious right prepared for the coming of Christ? All around the country, there are churches who have made indigenous rights or LGBTQ rights their gospel. Are they prepared for the coming of Christ? Evangelicalism today is populated with megachurches. Are they prepared for His coming? Many conservatives have clung to the literal interpretation of Scripture as their dogma. Are we prepared for the coming of Christ? Is anybody ready? Let me lower the bar just a little bit. Are we even prepared for a spiritual awakening in our midst? If you move away from the literal physical return of Christ to just the visitation of God on a community or a nation or a church, is anybody really ready for that? Well, what would it be like if he came? How would you know if you're ready? What would it involve? Let me give it to you in one word. Fire. Malachi says he will be like a refiner's fire. Look at Matthew's record of this, chapter 3. The last word in verse 10 about John's ministry is fire. The last word in verse 11 is fire. The last word in verse 12 is, guess what? Fire. It's no wonder that God asked his people through Malachi's writing, who can endure the day of his coming? I mean, if he's coming like that, that is searching. That is discriminating. That, my friends, is heat. Now, if we continue to take a lesson from the first century, what's apparent is that the discriminating fire of God did not actually make a difference between those various movements and groups because instead it discriminated between individuals in those groups. For example, the Lord is going to choose a zealot, one of those political activists, Simon the Zealot, as one of the twelve. At the opposite end of the spectrum, he's going to choose Matthew, the tax collector, the guy who made a truce with Rome. I mean, you talk about two guys who should never have gotten along. Well, the Lord's going to put them in the same apostolic company. The Lord's going to save people like Nicodemus, a ruler among the Jews and a Pharisee. He's going to save a great rabbi and persecutor of the Christians, Saul of Tarsus. He's going to call a great company of the Sadducees to himself. He's going to save individuals regardless of their grouping, which means that when he comes, it's not really going to be a primarily a matter of which group you belong to. In other words, the issue is not going to be whether you were a Baptist or went to a Baptist church, or whether you were an Anglican or a Roman Catholic. It's not going to be whether you were an Australian or whether you were born in India. It's going to be whether you, as an individual, had prepared yourself 
for the Lord. It'll be a personal decision you made, not who you hung out with that makes the difference. And depending on the decision you made, when He comes, it will be necessary to stand the test of His fire. Our country and much of the world that's being exposed to Christianity really needs the emphasis that John the Baptist gave when he paved the way for the Messiah. Contemporary Christianity today is all of the above, right? It's the Zealots, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Qumran community, it's the isolationists, the common ordinary people, those who've hardly ever darkened the door of a church, and yet they check Christian on the national census. That's the state of Christianity in the world today. But what all of these people need to seriously consider is the fact that God has promised a second coming for His Son. And in spite of our attitude that it won't happen in our lifetime, the Lord has been telling us since the days of His earthly ministry, Behold, I come quickly. Now, if the Lord doesn't come within our lifetimes, what is true of His literal, physical coming is also true in many ways of any visitation that He would give to us, which means that we need to make ready. Because here's the thing. The Lord draws near to people who have drawn near to Him. So James says, right? Draw near to me, I will draw near to you. Same words are said almost verbatim in Malachi. God said, return to me and I'll return to you. So in light of that, what would it mean to draw near and prepare ourselves for his fire? Well, have you ever thought about going through your home with fire? Just take a spiritual fire and run it right across your bookshelves and prepare for his coming. Take that fire and apply it to your streaming services, to your entertainments. Prepare yourself for the coming of the Lord. Go to your garage. Go to your shed. Apply fire to the corners of your life and your mind. Now let me tell you this. It's not just the bad things you're looking for. It isn't just sinful things. It's the things that have become our masters when they should have become our servants. What we have in our homes and on our phones and on our computers and in our thoughts should be our servant, but instead it's become the master. So prepare for the Lord's coming. And when you do, you might be like old Anna in the temple or like a Simeon, the two who recognized the Messiah when he showed up. I mean, nobody else had the eyes to see, or they denied that he even came in the first place. They were ready. Will you be ready for his coming? Let's pray. Our Father, how thankful we are for the promises of your word, how precious they are to us. And the revelation of the Messiah and his mission has brought us hope and life and peace and reconciliation, and mercy, and grace. Lord, we avail ourselves of these things freely. Now help us to be ready for when He comes again. We love You and we thank You in Jesus' name.
Amen.